We are in Genesis chapter 7, starting to read from verse 1. Genesis chapter 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, and you, you and all your household. For you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. You shall take with you every clean animal by sevens, and male, a male and his female. And of the animals that are not clean, a male and his female. Also of the birds of the sky by sevens, male and female, to keep offspring alive on the face of the earth. For after seven more days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights. And I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. Now Noah was six hundred years old when the flood water came upon the earth. Then Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him entered the ark because of the water of the flood. Of clean animals and animals that are not clean and birds and everything that creeps on the ground. There went into the ark to Noah by twos, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. It came about after the seven days that the, that the water of the flood came upon the earth. In, six, in the sixth hundredth year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the seventeenth day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky were opened. The rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. And on the very same day that Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife and the, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, they and every beast of its kind and all the cattle after their kind and every creeping thing that creeps in the earth after its kind and every bird after its kind and all sorts of birds. So they went into the ark to Noah by twos of all flesh in which was the breath of life. Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded him, and the Lord closed it behind him. And the floods came upon the earth for forty days, and the water increased and lifted up the ark, so that it rose above the earth. The water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. The water prevailed more and more upon the earth, so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heaven were covered." Okay, we'll stop there. It says in verse 1, The Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. For you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. Noah's righteousness delivered him along with his family. You want the very best for your family? One day you will want the very best for your children when you have children. You will want, you will, you would die a hundred times for that child if you could. That's how much you would love your child. It says that because of Noah's righteousness, doesn't mean that he was without sin. It means that he was righteous so he would give up a sin offering when it was needed. The man knew how to repent. The man knew how to have a relationship with God. And the result of that was it was a blessing to his whole family to protect them. Look in, in Proverbs chapter 14. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 26. says, in the Proverbs 14, 26, In the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence, and His children will have refuge. You want the best for your children. People spend enormous amounts on their children, on sending them to the best schools and you know, giving them piano lessons and swimming lessons and tennis lessons and all these things. That's a great thing to do. The Scripture tells you, 
your children can have a refuge if you have a strong confidence in the Lord. What you do with the Lord will affect your children. You want the very best for your children, you follow the Lord. You follow the Lord. You start following the Lord now. Because if you think, well, when I have kids, then I'll start following the Lord. You won't. You won't. You're lying to yourself. Plus, your children will see the hypocrisy. They'll see that you lie against the truth. That you're only doing this for their sake. Children are very good at picking up on hypocrisy. In fact, they'll point it out to you all the time. Very good at that. In the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence. You want to have power in your life? You fear the Lord. When you fear the Lord, there is strong confidence. It's like when you, when you see a person get on, on a horse and they're not good at horseback riding. They're just nervous about everything and the horse is walking along and the horses, you know, kind of stumble a little bit all the time. They, and the person's like, <gasps> you take a, a, a man who, who's, who's good at riding, he just hops up on the horse and he goes and nothing happens to him. He's fine. There's strong confidence. Because he understands how to ride a horse. No harm comes upon him. He's just fine. In the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence. If you learn to fear the Lord, you will have strong confidence. And your children will have refuge. You get closer to the Lord, it will be very good for your children, as well as for you. In Psalm 112, Psalm 112, verse 1 and 2, it says... Praise the Lord. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. All right? How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. In other words, you'll be blessed, but not just you. The next verse says, His descendants will be mighty on earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. You want the best thing for your children? It says, You make this word of God... You fear God and you make Him your delight. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in His commandments. You take the Word of God and you make it your delight. What is the outcome of that? Your descendants will be mighty on earth. That's the promise. Your descendants will be mighty on earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. You want blessing to come upon your family? Blessing upon your children? Yes. Fine. Give them the tennis lessons and the swimming lessons and the voice lessons and all of these wonderful things and spend all this money sending them to the best schools. But they will have lost out tremendously if you do not seek the Lord. Because the blessing comes. A divine blessing comes. He says, I'll make your children mighty on this earth if you fear me, God says. And if you make my word your delight. If you delight in the word of God, I'll bless your children abundantly. If you will take the Word of God and make it your daily delight, I will bless your children tremendously. That is exactly what God is sharing with with Noah. He says, because of this, because of your righteousness, I'm going to protect you and your family because of your righteousness. You bring protection upon your home when you follow the Lord. Protection comes upon your home. This is what He does for you. Now, what I want to look at here is I want to begin to look at this because many people dismiss this. Many people dismiss this whole account of Noah as being a bunch of nonsense or as being a fable or as being allegorical. 
And I know because you're such great scientists that you wonder about these sorts of things. Let me assure you, this is exactly what happened. It is no problem for God to bring a bunch of animals into a boat. We've looked at the size of the boat before. 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet tall. It has 1.5 million cubic feet in it. 95,700 square feet because it had three levels, it says in the Bible. That is equivalent to 550 train car loads. Now, a typical train will have about 80, 85 cars. 550 livestock, livestock cars is the square feet that's inside that, 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 that boat. It had, it had enough room. Those 550 train cars can hold 130,000 sheep. So if you th figure a sheep is an average size animal, it's actually larger than average size as a sheep. If you just take all animals and you just look at what the average size is, but that's 130,000 sheep. It is estimated that to have each of its kind that you'd have between 35,000 and 70,000 animals on that boat. So is there room? Yes, there is room on the boat. If you're worried about that, there is room. We talked about how, how there is this vessel on the top of Mount Ararat, which is, which is uh, uh, northern Turkey, southern Russia, Armenia, is that Mount Ararat area. And many people have cited this, and there's documentation on this. Some people will say, well, it's allegorical because the whole earth wasn't flooded, only parts of it. Well... Look, you don't have to believe in any of this. All you have to believe is that Jesus Christ is Lord and He's risen from the dead in order to be a believer, in order to be a Christian. But what will happen if you start paring away pieces of the Bible you want to give up the resurrection to? Because that's a miracle as well. This, so, so, so let's begin to look at this. If, if it had just been a local flood, it would make building the ark unnecessary. Because Noah and the other animals, they could have just gone to higher ground if it was just a localized flood. The very large size of, the, of this boat would be unnecessary if it were a localized flood. He only has to take a few of the local animals. Or the animals would be unnecessary because they could just flee to higher ground. It would be unnecessary if, if it were a local flood. The use of universal language in the relevant passages indicates a physical world was covered. If you look in, in this same portion... For example, in, in verse 19 of Genesis chapter 7, verse 19, the water prevailed more and more upon the earth so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. This is talking about again and again, it looks like universal language. All the mountains were covered. And, and uh, uh, again in verse 22 of the same chapter, of all that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life died. And, and uh, um, you see this again, the long time that the people and the animals were in the ark. We're going to see this in, 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 uh, in Genesis chapter, in, in verse 24, it says, The water prevailed on, upon the earth 150 days. The water prevailed upon the earth. So the earth was covered for 150 days. We're going to see in Genesis chapter 8 that it took 75 days for the decreasing water before the tops of the mountains could even be seen. The tops of the mountains were covered, it says in verse 20 of Genesis chapter 7, to 15 cubits higher than the mountains they were covered. 
15 cubits, that's 22 feet higher than the highest mountains that were covered. While the flood prevailed for 150 days, it took 225 more days for the earth to dry. And, and all of this requires this to be a worldwide flood, not a local flood. We've seen local floods. There was a local flood here in Houston. By the next day, the water's gone, except in the area where, where they kept dropping off water from a dam that had stored up. Water clears out very quickly. They were in that ark for 375 days. You say, well, they didn't really know arithmetic back then. No, they knew arithmetic very well. Does it sound to you like they don't know arithmetic when it says, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, people who don't know arithmetic don't use numbers because they know that they don't know that very well. They knew arithmetic very well. You say, well, how could they live so long? Well, why don't we live longer? That's the bigger question that scientists have. Why do we wear out when we do? You study these telomerases at the, at the, end, at the ends of, of, of these DNA chains. Why are these fraying? I mean, you look at longevity studies. The question isn't, how could someone live hundreds of years? The question is, why don't we live longer? That's actually the scientific question. But I know you're all great scientists. You want to dismiss these things. There's all this, this evidence. Now, now in verse 6, it says the flood covered... Uh, I'm sorry, not in verse 6, the, the sixth, my sixth point. The flood covered all the highest mountains 22 feet over. The purpose of the flood was to judge the entire world. And it's mentioned that in Genesis chapter 6 multiple times. To judge the entire world. It, the, it says God promised He would bring no more flood upon the earth. So if you look in Genesis chapter 8, the next chapter, verse 21 and 22. Genesis chapter 8, verse 21 and 22, it says, The Lord smelled the soothing aroma that's after Noah had offered up the offering. And the Lord said to Himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. And then if you look in, in chapter 9 of Genesis, verse 11 says, I, will, I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off, from, cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. That's what God said. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So God promised that He'd bring no more flood upon the earth. If this were just a local flood, then God's broken His promise. Because there's floods all the time that people die in. All the time. Go to Bangladesh. Every year, there's floods that go through Bangladesh. They kill lots and lots of people. His promise was that he'd never flood the earth in the same way. However, if the promise was that he'd never have a universal flood, a worldwide flood, then he's kept his promise. All present humanity is to have originated from the sons of Noah. This is in Genesis chapter 9, verse 18. Genesis chapter 9, verse 18, it says, Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. And again, in Genesis chapter 10, verse 32, it says the same thing. These are the families of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies by their nations. And out of these, the nations were separated on the earth out of the flood. So you, you see time and time again these pieces that come together. Um, all biblical references to the flood outside of the book of Genesis. 
all the references. And we've looked at these before. We looked at uh, the New Testament verses, and there's, there's other Old Testament verses that are listed there. Every one of those is speaking of a wiping out. A, 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 that every reference is speaking of something that is universal or worldwide. And finally, the universal Noahic flood, the worldwide Noahic flood, has parallels in over 40 other cultures that do not even have the Bible. 40 other cultures that do not have the Bible speak of a worldwide flood. Something happened. Now, if after all that you still don't want to believe that, fine. But let me, let me tell you what else is that I was reading, so I've done a lot of reading to read about this, and some people argue this, some Christians argue this. Look, if you, if you hold on to a worldwide flood, what will happen is that people with good sense, good scientific sense, will say, how can that be? And they'll throw out the whole Bible altogether and say, that's a bunch of nonsense. That's not been my experience at all. If you lose the high ground, of the veracity of the Bible, your power is gone. Your power is gone. Those who would say that this Bible is just a bunch of fables, that the Bible is a bunch of fables, but, okay, the resurrection, that was the one miracle we'd hold on to. But everything else is a bunch of fables. Jesus spoke of Noah's flood multiple times and related it to his second coming. And the destruction that's going to come upon humankind at his second coming. Now, was Jesus also also uh, 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 looking at this as a fable? Well, then mean then then it might mean that he's looking at his future coming as a fable. The writing that you see in this, where it talks about the number of days that they were in the ark and the things that were happening, is not that of legends. It's very very specific. Very specific what has happened. This is miraculous. It is miraculous that God can have all these animals come and converge in an ark. But remember, if you have God, the miraculous, this is, this is, you know, His domain. This is what He does for a living. I mean, He does the miraculous for lunch. I mean, it's easy for Him. Once you have God, you can do all of this. God does this all the time. He's able to do this. Now, I have a great advantage over the vast majority of other people in the world to be able to understand miracles. You say, well, how can you be so proud? Well, let me tell you why. Um, um, now, 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 Dr. Kurti, who's back there, he, he has the same advantage that I have. And, and uh, Barbara has the same advantage. As organic chemists... We see something that nobody else sees. You are the greatest miracle. And by that I mean just from the standpoint of the physical entity. Put aside the spiritual, which is beyond value. But just from the physical entity. This whole thing of life is absolutely just astounding to anybody that studies molecular interaction and thinks about this. Lots of people study molecules, but they never ponder life. They just think, oh, people kind of understand how life formed. Molecules came together and a cell formed and boom, yeah, got life. But to those who really study it, you say that molecules are totally indifferent to life. Molecules never move toward life. Organisms want life. Molecules do not care about life. Not at all. Molecules never organize in the patterns for life. 
regular patterns of AAAAA or ABAB do not give you the code of life, not at all. Codes of life have to be non-regular patterns. You never see that in nature. Molecules don't order in that way. Protocell experiments are nonsensical experiments. They do nothing. Just because you ordered a bunch of lipids does nothing. You have to have liposaccharides. You have to have sugars hanging off these cells. And you say, well, how complex could that be? It's just a bunch of sugars. How do you make a sugar? Nobody knows. No experiment has ever been done to form sugars with any specific chirality. All you form is vast mixtures of junk. And each one, say, say, you, say you have mannose, you've got five stereocenters, that's two to the fifth possible isomers. Most people don't know this, so they, they, they don't realize how hard this is. If you just have six mannoses, just an oligosaccharide hanging off the side of a cell, just six of these, it has over one trillion ways it can be hooked together. You get that wrong, the cell dies. This is amazing. The complexity that is within you biologically is more of a miracle than calling a bunch of animals into a boat. I mean, because zookeepers can kind of do that. They do that all the time. I, I, the, the, the Ringling Brothers Circus no longer exists. But when it existed, I remember it used to come into the capital of the city that we lived in. And I'd see them. They'd parade these animals from the train and they'd parade them down the road and all the elephants and all the animals are being paraded down the road. And they, they, they do this. Go ahead, make a person for me. Try doing that. How about make just a single cell? You see, people have made artificial cells. They have not. In fact, the authors of, the, of that paper never called it an artificial cell. They took a real cell. And they took a real cell. And they took the genome out of this one and put it in that one. And people say, yeah, they, they made an artificial cell. No, that's like my buying two cars. My taking the computer controller out of one car and putting it in the other car. Say, I made a car. <laughs> No, that doesn't happen. You are, you are far more miraculous. And that's why we keep looking. Oh, look, life is ubiquitous. It's simple. Everywhere we look outside of Earth, we've never seen any life. Nothing, nothing, nothing in the remains of life. Nothing. And if there are remains, there's a good chance it came from Earth by some impact on Earth which launched it. Because just as Mars has Earth material on it, and the Earth has Mars material on it, these things exchange through asteroid impact. But we've never found life anywhere. That's the amazing thing. Remember, what you are, biologically, is far more amazing. You say, well, we understand biology very well. No, we don't. We don't. How come, you know, they're making robots. You've seen all these robots. Have you ever seen a robot made out of biological material? Never. It's all made out of silicon and plastic and carbon fiber. and That's what makes it up. If we understand biology so well, why don't we just make robots that look like people and then we don't have to make them look like people because they're already like people. I mean, we, we can just do this, use biology. Because we don't know how. We don't know how. It is so hard to understand how to put molecular structure in order to build something. And then you have a thinking, rational person that they can think, that they can ponder, and they can speak in symbolism like this? That's the miracle. That's far greater than that. Than, 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 you know, even the resurrection. Yes, that's a miracle. That is easier to comprehend than building ab initio from the beginning. The resurrection, you already have the body there. Just bringing it back to life, which we don't know how to do. But imagine making the whole body from just a bunch of molecules. Very hard to do. Nobody's ever even approached a single cell. Nowhere close. 
just the interactomes, just the protein-protein interactions, the non-covalent interactions in, a, in, a, in just a simple yeast cell is calculated to be 10 to the 79 billion. That doesn't mean anything to you. The number of elemental particles in your universe is 10 to the 90. 10 to the 79 billion is the non-covalent interactions that have to order between just protein-protein in a single yeast cell. God does miracles all the time. When people say that if you take this word of God and you really believe it, then scientists won't want to come. Oh no, that's not the case at all. It's when you dilute the word of God and say that it's a bunch of fables, then scientists don't want to come. There's no power there. Yes, once in a while, those who dilute it will see people coming to the Lord once in a while, like once or twice in their life, they'll lead somebody to the Lord. You go fishing in a boat. Over a few decades, a couple times a fish is going to jump into your boat. That does happen sometimes. You can look up YouTube videos where guys there, and boom, a fish just jumps in his boat. That happens. Some people get saved that way. But not many fish get caught that way. The way fish get caught is you go with intention to catch them. You take this word of God... You don't leave the high ground of the truth of the Word of God. And then your power remains. And then people see the power of God. And they come to the Lord. We're going to turn it over to Jacob now. Jacob's going to show us what the power of God has done in his own life. Come on up, Jacob, and tell us, tell us what, 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 what God's done in your life. Thank you, Dr. Tor. And I am just so incredibly indebted right now to the... Um the Holy Spirit to speak out of my life and into yours. Uh, I just can't even begin to explain um, how indebted I am. And that's because I'm going to do two things. First, I'm going to tell you the worst thing I've ever done in my entire life. And then I'm going to tell you who I am through Christ, despite that. Now, Genesis, in the book of Genesis, God takes a dark, void, formless, shapeless rock in the sky, visits it, and makes its home there. Makes his home there. And that sounds like a testimony to me. And that's exactly what this is. Now, if we're not careful, the word of God in this way can become just like theology. And that's exactly where I was when I was 18 years old. And that's um, the age I understand that many of y'all are at. And the first verse, even though I grew up in the church, um, the first verse that ever convicted me as a Christian was, uh, from 1 Peter 5. So if you turn to any verse, turn to 1 Peter 5. And the verse is 1 Peter 5, 8, which says to be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. And that verse convicted me, because at the age of 18, I was addicted to marijuana, drugs, and alcohol. And if you're wondering why we're talking about something like this in the church, it's because it's really easy to come to church every week especially parents' weekend, um, and just put on a face, put on a show for somebody else. Uh, when I was 16, I started smoking weed. 17, I was on my third international mission trip uh, when my parents found, discovered my habit and the life I had been hiding. I returned to the church feeling shameful, hypocritical, and isolated. And I would sometimes come into Dr. Tour's class, uh, sometimes hungover. Anybody? No. Okay. Um, and I was just always looking for somebody who might have had the right words to speak into my life. 
And I never found him. Not immediately. I entered a new season of my life of guiltless partying, where uh, my drug habits became more frequent and much more diverse. Need I say more? And this new season was accompanied by physical, psychological, and emotional withdrawals, my spiritual sickness being accompanied by frequent, reoccurring nightmares. I remember one so vividly in which I got in a car accident and I locked eyes with Satan himself. And it was just a dream, mind you, but it was the most terrifying moment of my entire life. Until a month later, I'm leaving a rave. I tell my friend, yeah, I can drive. I'm behind the wheel of a car, exiting the highway 60 miles an hour, and I put the, push the brake pedal down, and it just goes all the way to the floor. I was approaching a red light, and I thought at that moment that Satan had won my life over. Now, I want you to take a moment to think about the worst thing you've ever done in your entire life, and the last person you'd ever want to tell that to. What do you think they'd tell you? What do you think they'd say? I, something came over me that made me want to talk, tell this to Dr. Tour, and he said, I don't condemn you. Can we say that to one another? You know that rare moment in Bible study when, when somebody just says something so out there, puts everything on the table, and you're like, I don't know what to say. Do I call the police? Uh, just say, I don't condemn you. And that's what Christ said. So in May of 2014, I flew through a red light at about 50 miles an hour up a hill. car came to a slow, complete stop. So what's the point? Why am I telling you all of this? Well, do you carry shame, pain, hurt? in your life from something that you've done? Maybe something that somebody's done to you? I encourage you to bring it to the cross. Just bring it to the cross. I brought my shame, pain, hurt, and illness to the cross. And even though I was powerfully delivered from drugs and alcohol, and I'm telling you, this is not, it's not a magic bullet, uh, but I didn't die that day. Uh, I didn't die in, in May 2014, but I did die later when I got baptized and I put to death an old life that included friendships, relationships, and anything that I decided would keep me from pursuing God wholeheartedly and fully. I took a photo. I remember I posted a photo of my baptism. And I realized it was so hypocritical. So I started deleting everything in my life that was not God-honoring. Just one by one. And at the end of it, I realized four years of my life on Facebook, there's just nothing. So, and that's, that's the age, that's the length of an undergraduate career. Mind you. So we think these, what we're doing is going to last forever. But I count it all lost compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. As it says in Philippians 3. After high school, I had no university prospects. Today I'm pursuing my PhD. And I, I live really close. I never wanted to go back to Austin where that accident happened. But now I live really close to the intersection. Something I do is I, I work with an organization similar to Alcoholics Anonymous, if you're familiar uh, but specifically targeted at students who want to go back to school, who've had drug or alcohol issues. Um, and God has given me, he's answered this prayer of giving me this incredible boldness to go before people like this and to proclaim this, uh, which is something that is so rare. I mean, you just can't buy that kind of behavior. You just can't buy it. You can't buy it. There's no prescription for it. And I, I want to read something out of First um, Peter Related to what, relating to what we're studying in the life of Noah, it says, and I'm reading uh, out of 1 Peter 3, it says, You know, even though God waited patiently all the days that Noah built his ship, 
Only a few were saved then, eight to be exact. Saved from the water, by the water. In other words, Noah could have easily been killed by that flood. Everybody on the earth was killed in that flood. And there was nothing particular about Noah that, that would have saved him. Except that God gave him a command to build an ark. And through his obedience, Noah discovered salvation. Christ gives us a command in Acts to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That verse in 1 Peter goes on to say, the waters of baptism do this for you. So today I look for resurrection power in all that I do. Um, every interaction that I, that I have. Um, I started doing that first with my research. And then I just started to do it everything, in every way when I talk to somebody. Or any problem I have, go back to the Word of God. Uh, and I look for resurrection power because it's in our most shameful, dead places in our lives where God really makes his power shine. And I'm just going to give an example. Um, 2015, my dad experienced uh, a detached retina. It was my first year at the university. I was still, um, I was still in my addictive season and battling my own problems. He was going through his own. He gets a detached retina. The doctors operate on the wrong eye. Uh, today he's legally blind. Uh, although he, he has, if you know him, he has some vision, but it's just been, the recovery has never stopped. He went in for a, a surgery a few weeks ago. And he told me, I'll never forget. I don't even think he was looking at me when he said this, but he, he just told me, I think his head was down. He said, Jacob, you know, I know you're studying circuits and maybe one day you're going to work on some sort of uh, computer vision circuit, you know, and uh, redeem this whole thing. And I was like, I thought that was just so stupid. Um, let's be real. Um, I thought I would never do that. And I thought wrong. I want to remind you that in, in, in Genesis, God loves to start with the most broken, empty, void, lifeless thing and make it flourish with abundant life. So today I'm here to tell you that and to encourage you to call on the name of the Lord Jesus. Say, I don't condemn you in those rare moments when you don't know what to say. Because that's what Christ said. And really mean it. Because uh, ultimately, when we wonder why people don't come to church or they don't accept their invitation, honestly, it's us. Or it's people that they've seen in the church and the hypocrisy that they've seen there. I encourage you to be baptized and be delivered. Desire the fullness of knowing him. Embrace your conviction and find your mission. And take the next step in this life walk with God. Because his plans for you are so far beyond your wildest dreams. Thank you. The truth that we have in the scriptures, it delivers lives. That's what this is all about. This is not a, just a, about a bunch of fables. This is the truth that delivers lives. I, have, I went to college when I was 18, and I've never left. So I've seen a lot of students, a lot of students. What delivers people is the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. He died for your sins, he died for our sins, and he rose again from the dead. This is the power of the gospel. The word of God is true. Every bit of it is true. It is not a bunch of fables. It is true, and there is deliverance in this. I see lives like Jacob's lives.
delivered over and over again by the power of God. I encourage you to come to Jesus to get saved. Let's pray. Abba Father, I thank you so much for your word. Your word is powerful. Your word is like fire and like a hammer which breaks the stone. And yet the kindness of God draws men to repentance. Father, thank you for the work that you do in young lives. Father, I pray for those here who do not know you or those who are struggling with addictions in which they're being overcome. Father, I pray that this day they would pray, Lord, save me because I am a sinner. Forgive me and come into my life. Lord, forgive me and come into my life. I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And Father, for those here who know you, I pray, Lord, that they would not get drawn astray from believing wholeheartedly the truth that's written in the Word of God, the veracity of the Word of God, the truth of it, that it is there to deliver men and women from lives of sin to lives of walking with Jesus. Father, let them take hold of your word, and as they love your word, that you would then bless their families through them. Father, I commit them to you. Have mercy on these young people, I pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.